The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3 together. And I'll begin reading at verse number 8 if you'll read along with me silently. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips, that they speak no guile. Now that's a verse every Christian should read every day. Amen? For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips, that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Verse 13, And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time we have. Help us now to learn today. Instruct us that we might... Uh, be good disciples of Jesus Christ. Thank you for this time now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So over the past 21 months, we've studied several aspects of the Christian life. Uh, we've, had, uh, we've looked at the seven divine calls from God. Oddly enough, there were eight lessons in the seven divine calls from God. But anyway, uh, the believer's doctrine. We looked at that. There were, there were several lessons there. The judgment of the saints. We looked at 12 different lessons on the judgment of the saints, and then the rapture of the church, which we just finished uh, with five lessons on that. Now, I would like to take a little time uh, going forward and discuss the discipleship of the believer. Now, what is discipleship? If we're going to understand discipleship, we should first know what it is, right? So what is discipleship? Well, by definition, a disciple is a follower. So, to be a disciple of something means that you are a follower of that, of that philosophy or of those teachings. A disciple is one who accepts the doctrine of another and assists in the furtherance of that doctrine. So, from this definition, we can see then that it is possible to be a Christian, but not a disciple. Because a disciple is someone who accepts the philosophies of the teacher, and assists the teacher in the furtherance of that doctrine. So it's important that we understand a Christian disciple is a person who believes and practices the principles of Christian living as taught by Jesus Christ and as outlined in the Holy Scriptures. Discipleship, then, is the process which enables a person to assimilate these principles 
and grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. In short, a disciple is someone who actively studies and pursues knowledge in the doctrines being taught. So it's possible for a lot of people to be believers in Christ, yet not disciples, and not practice discipleship. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Peter writes, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. Now, in my lifetime, I've seen a few newborn babes. My wife and I had three of our own. I have two grandsons, which is a lot of fun. And so I've seen a lot of newborn babes. And you know what newborn babes do a lot? They do three things a lot. They, they sleep a lot. They soil diapers a lot, but they also eat a lot. They feed often. Uh, it's, it's, it's amazing to me how there's no end to the hunger of a small child. And, and so they, they, they feed a lot. And Peter tells us that we're to be like newborn babies. And we're to desire the sincere milk of the word. But I want us to pay special attention to that word, sincere. This is an interesting word in the Greek. In the Greek language, the word sincere implies that the item is true and without fault or blemish. It's, uh, you know, in in the Greek marketplaces, uh, they would sell pottery. And often the potter would form this piece of pottery and that was his livelihood. That, that was how he was going to make money to sustain himself and his family. And sometimes these, when they dry, these vessels might crack. And they might have just a hairline crack, but enough to where if you put liquid into it, it would leak. So they had a very deceptive practice. They would melt wax, and they would rub wax into those cracks. And the wax would, would, would harden, and then they would paint the jar or do whatever they wanted to do to it. And then they'd put it up there for sale. And if someone was to pour a liquid into it to test it, it would hold long enough for them to be convinced it was sincere. So there was a test people started to use to find out whether or not it was sincere. And what they would do is they would hold the the vessel up to the sun. It would give it the sunlight test. And wax, of course, does not deflect sunlight. So if the vessel had a crack and had been filled with wax, when they held it up to the sun and looked inside, they would see the sunlight shining through the crack. So then when they went to the marketplace, they would say, is it sincere? And the, and the potter would say, oh, yes. Yes, it's sincere, which means it has no flaws. It has no blemish. So they could ask full price for it. 
Now, it's not, it's not an accident that Peter used the word sincere here. Because doctrine needs to be able to stand the sunlight test. Doctrine needs to be able to stand the test against the light of God's word. So, he tells us to desire the sincere milk of the word. Peter adds this word to call attention to the importance of true doctrine. Not just any old word will work. Not just any old word will cause real growth. You know, it's just like a baby. Uh, You can feed a baby food, but it may not be nutritious food, right? It may not be food that will promote good growth and healthy growth in the child. And as a matter of fact, uh, people can be malnutrition. And malnutrition means, it doesn't mean they're not necessarily eating. I mean, I've seen, I've read cases of people weighing three or four hundred pounds being suffering from malnutrition. So it's not that they're not eating. It's just they're not eating the good things. They're not eating the right foods. You can be well fed and very sick, can't you? And it's true in the Word of God also. You can be, you can be well fed. You can go to church every Sunday. You can go to church uh, uh, constantly and you can hear preaching. But if it's not true doctrine, if it's not the sincere Word of God, you're not going to grow spiritually. Your growth will be stunned. And, and, and you'll, be, you'll be as a newborn babe, even though you may have been in church for years. Only the sincere, true word of God will benefit the believer. So not only is it important that you be in church and have your children in church, but it's important that you be sitting under the right doctrine and being taught the right things. Therefore, through a consistent study of God's word, we will grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And this is discipleship. Now, I realize that I'm not giving you any earth-shattering information here. I'm not giving you things you don't already know. But you know, the interesting thing about men and women is how forgetful we are. And how quickly we become complacent in all the things that we should and do. So, um, I flipped the page, I think. Bear with me. So, furthermore, discipleship is the process. Is the process whereby a believer is equipped to overcome joyfully the pressures and trials of this present life. We all go through troubles, we know that. We all go through trials. And uh, there's, some people go through trials and troubles and they, they come through the other side and uh, they, they've learned some things and they've grown and they're still strong in Christ. Others go through the same trials and they come through the other side defeated and broken. And the difference is the, this process of the discipleship. Uh, and, and the discipleship is, is the thing that teaches us how to handle those trials and troubles and, and, and helps us to handle them with joy and with happiness. James wrote, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. 
knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Now James' words in this passage imply a process of growth. He said, the trying of your faith worketh patience. And that's one thing we we learn in life, isn't it? We learn to be patient. I would imagine that I could say this confidently. Those of us in this room with gray hair probably have more patience than those of you who still have your full color. Probably, I say. Not always, because some men don't seem to learn no matter what they go through. But one thing for sure, the gray hair has been through some things. Our faith has been tried, and we've learned to be patient, and we've learned to wait on the Lord and not get ahead of him. And and wait on the Lord because the Lord will always do what? He'll always do what's best for you. Always. You can have that confidence to know. You can have the confidence to know that nothing happens in your life without God's knowledge. And that God will always do what's best for you. And if you're going through trouble, and if you're having problems, there's a lesson there you need to learn. There's something there that God is trying to teach you. No matter what's going on, there's something for us to learn in trouble. And we need to, we need to shut our mouth and open our ears and listen to the Lord. The, by the way, the faster you learn the lesson, the quicker you get out of the trouble. Amen? So, be quiet and listen. I was going to say shut up, but mom said never say that. So, be quiet and listen. Listen to the Lord. Discipleship is a process of growth. This process requires believers to constantly examine your own thoughts, words, and actions in accordance with the Word of God. It's when we Sometimes it's when we become a little too confident in ourselves. It's when we, we seem to be doing everything well. And so we, we get to, to get this impression, this idea that we're okay. And when you think you're okay, you're in trouble. Because you need to understand you're never okay. You're secure in Christ. But you're never okay. Because we're still in our flesh. And so we're still going to goof up. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the great, the great apostle Paul, he wrote, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. That's interesting. The great Apostle Paul said, I keep under my body. In other words, he said, I keep a close eye on myself. I judge myself. I I govern myself. I rule myself in my flesh every day. Because even though I'm a great preacher, he's saying, I I can make a mistake and one day end up as a castaway outside of the will of God. So we have to be careful. But also in this verse, he speaks expectantly. In other words, he expects that by his constant and consistent introspection, he will mature into a believer 
that walks worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I, I therefore run, not as uncertainly. So he, he expects, he, he runs this Christian race expecting full well to be rewarded at the end. Paul lives an expectant life. And that promotes his growth. It, it helps him to examine himself and, and to face the realities of what he is. And, and, and by that, he, he, he assimilates the principles of God into his life, and he grows into a mature believer. As disciples, we have the responsibility to promote the doctrines of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have that responsibility to your, to your family, to your children. You and I have the responsibility to promote the doctrines of Christ to the community, and yea, unto the entire world. And this is the expectation of the Lord also, by the way. Today, God expects you to grow. He expects you to learn of him and to, to be knowledgeable concerning the word of God. And he expects you to bring that message out to the world. In John chapter 15 and verse 16, we read, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. Now, that term fruit there isn't primarily applied to us going out and bringing forth um, converts, although that is part of it. The fruit here is the fruit of the, 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 fruit of the spirit-filled life. We're to grow. God expects that we will grow. He's chosen us and he's ordained that we will grow and that we will mature as believers and that we will assimilate the fruits of the Spirit into our life and live it as we go forth. It is expected of disciples that we will grow in and further the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must commit our hearts and minds and our entire person to growing in the knowledge and understanding of God. We should always be ready to give testimony for the hope that is within us and disciple others to walk in his way. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, we read it just a moment ago, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you, asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So we need to be prepared. We need to be ready. We need to, we, we need to be knowledgeable. If someone came up to you and asked you, what do I have to do in order to be saved? Could you tell them? Could you open the Bible and instruct them? Show them what God says? That's, that's what's expected of us. You and I, if, if we are disciples of Christ, then there's an expectation that we are knowledgeable. That we are students of the word of God, students of the life of Christ, and that we are able to answer these people and answer them according to the hope that is in us. So now that I've taken a few moments and discipleship is the process of growth in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to spend the next few lessons identifying the elements of discipleship. And 
there's going to be several lessons on this, so we won't get through all of them today. I'm hoping just to get through number one today. But the first element of our discipleship is this, commitment. And commitment is putting God first. I'd like you to turn with me to Mark chapter 8, please. Mark chapter 8. And we're going to read just four verses. Mark chapter 8, and let's look at verse number 34. We read here, And when he called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel's, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now I want you to notice with me the words there in verse 34 where the Lord said, Whosoever will come after me. Now this, this would imply discipleship, right? This would imply being a disciple of Christ. Those who will come after him, those who will follow him. As we said, a disciple is one who agrees with and, and, and furthers the, the, the doctrines of another. Now, we certainly would do no injustice to the scripture to use this verse to teach salvation. Yet we must remember that scripture must be taken in context. Therefore, we must identify the setting of the passage. We see here that the Lord is addressing his disciples. If you, if you look at verse 34, it says, And when he called the people unto him with his disciples. So we see that he is addressing his disciples. So what is he saying? What does the Lord mean when he says, Take up thy cross and follow me? Well, let me begin by stating what it does not mean. Many people interpret cross as some burden they must carry in their Christian lives. Perhaps it's a strained relationship or a thankless job or a physical illness. With self-pitying pride, they say, well, that's my cross to bear. Uh, Such an interpretation is not what Jesus meant. At the time this scripture was written, the cross was not thought of as a symbolism of a burden that must be carried. It is viewed at this time as what? An instrument of death. It's not a burden to be borne through life. At the time Jesus spoke these words, the cross was a, was a, was a, a, a means of putting people to death. Therefore, keeping with the context of the scriptures, I believe that the Lord is telling us that we must be willing to pay any cost to be his disciple. We must be prepared to pay even with our own life if we will be a disciple of Christ, if we will follow him. Now this interpretation agrees with the statement made by Jesus in verse 35, where it says, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake in the Gospels, the same shall save it. 
So when Jesus tells us to take up our cross and follow him, he is implying that in order to be his disciple, we must be willing to follow him, to put him first at any cost. So this begs the question, how willing are you to follow Jesus today? You you want to be a disciple? Well, what are you willing to pay to follow Jesus? What are you willing to pay in personal cost to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and be called a disciple? If you wonder if you are ready to take up the cross, consider then these questions. Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means first losing your friends? 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 16, Paul states, At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. I had a, a good friend in high school. His name was Mike Jones. Mike and I had known each other from young boys. We were, we were, we were best friends. We were what today would be called BFFs. We were best friends. Matter of fact, we were such good friends. In high school, we shared a locker for four years. We had the same locker. And oddly enough, when we'd go away on a, on a school break, we'd come back. Neither one of us could remember the combination. So we'd have to go down to the gym and have the coach look at us and shake his head and give us our combination. But we were best friends. And when I got saved, I thought to myself, I thought of him. He was one of the first ones I thought of. And I went to his house and I sat in his living room and I witnessed to him and shared the gospel. And he got up and he opened the door and he said, get out. And as I was walking out, he said, don't bother ever coming back. You know, losing friends is hard. It really is. Especially friends that you've known since you were young. Paul here, he tells us he was forsaken by everyone he knew. And today, the same will be true for you and I. Jesus warned us that the world would hate us, just as it hated him. John fifteen eighteen. If the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. Now this may seem like a small thing, but it, it's bigger than we think. And the devil has used this to keep many people from following Jesus, especially teenagers. I used to warn my teens all the time. There are two things that are more important to a teenager than anything in life. His friends and his music. You parents of teenagers, listen to me carefully. Their friends and their music are the two most important things in their life. You attack either one of those and you've made an enemy. Then when they turn 16, a third thing comes into the play, and that's a car. So teenagers are focused on three things. Friends, music, and cars. And the devil knows this, and he uses this bond to friendship to destroy many a teenager. Because many teenagers know that in order to become a disciple of Christ and to follow him with all their heart is going to cost them friends, and that's a price they're not willing to pay. Are you willing to follow Jesus if, if it means losing your friends? But there's another group that makes it even more difficult to make that commitment to Jesus. And that is, are you willing to follow Jesus if it means alienation from your family? Not only your friends, but your family. 
In Luke chapter 12, I don't have time to read it, you can read it later, but in Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells us that, uh, that we're not to make the mistake of believing that, he didn't, that, he, that his presence doesn't cause contentions in this life. And he says, the father shall be divided against the son, and the son against the father, the mother against the daughter, and the daughter against the mother, the mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, of course there's nothing that can prevent that, uh, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. There have been times when I have had to take a stand on an issue and I had to take it all alone. My parents did not stand with me. Much as I did with my friend Mike, I went in and witnessed to my father and my father kicked me out the house. My own father told me to get out. He was incensed that I would imply that he and my mother wouldn't go to heaven. Uh, my siblings did not stand with me. My two sisters they, they, don't, they don't look at me the same way since, since I started following Jesus. They quit inviting me to the family Christmas parties and, and things like that. Of course, primarily they knew I wouldn't go anyway. Because I wasn't going to go to a drunken party under the guise of being a family Christmas celebration. My siblings would not stand with me. There have even been times over the last 36 years in the ministry, that even my own children did not agree with me. Times when my own kids came to me and said, Dad, do we have to do it this way? They, don't, they just didn't stand with me. So you better be prepared. If you want to be a disciple of Christ, if you want to be a disciplined follower of Jesus, there are times when you're going to be alienated from your own family. But let me ask you this. What cost is too great for the Lord? Consider this, that Jesus uh, laid aside all things for me. And at one point, he was even alienated from the Father for me. Did you know that? Did you know that for just a brief moment, Jesus himself was alienated from the Father? In Matthew chapter 27, you can read it later, the Father turned his back on the Son. Jesus himself took upon himself the sin of all mankind the sinful nature of man, and God turned his back on Christ. So there are times when to be a disciple, we're going to be, we're going to be alienated from family. This act by the Father and the Son was for the satisfaction of the justice of God, and it was done willingly. And so it is with you and, you and me. We must be willing to pay the cost of even our most precious relationships for the cause of Christ. And then quickly, are you willing to lose... Uh, not only your friends and, and your family, but the loss of your reputation. Again, I don't have time to read the verses. You can read them later from Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. Well, Paul, well, Paul talks about his reputation as a Pharisee. He said concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Paul was a devout Jew. He sat under the tutelage of Gamaliel. He says in Acts 22 and verse 3, I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up at this, in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous toward God, as ye all are this day. He was a zealot among the Pharisees. He had much to lose, and he gave it all up, in his own words, he says, I counted them, but 
tongue. So again, what about us today? How much prestige, how much honor, how much authority are we willing to relinquish in order to follow Christ? It may cost you your friends. It may cost you your family. It may cost you your reputation. Then are you willing to follow Jesus if it means losing your life? 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Now, of all the costs we've discussed today, this is probably the least likely any of us in this room will face. However, could you state as Paul did, I am now ready to be offered. I mean, it's not likely today that soldiers are going to walk in and arrest us and take us and we're going to be tried and and we're going to be burned at the stake or we're going to be hung or we're going to be shot. It's not likely that's going to happen. It could be, it could happen again in America one day if we're not careful about how fast our constitutional freedoms are being taken away. But that's a political statement. It has no place here. We, uh, we need to be aware, though, are we, are we prepared? Are we willing to be offered if necessary? Could I say, as Paul said, I am now ready to be offered? I, I hope that I could, and I hope that I would. Now, I'm not asking God to test me in this today. I pray I don't get tested in that. But our Christian liberties are, one by one, being challenged in America today. And just what if our freedom to preach the word of God by our convictions is taken away? That, that's pretty, that could be likely. Given the, given the new political temperature toward homosexuality, it, uh, it could come to the point where preachers who stand behind their pulpit and preach against uh, sodomism could be, they could have their, their freedoms taken away. We could lose our, our tax exemption. There could be laws passed where he could even be arrested for making such statements. Those are, those are, are likely, and they're closer than we think. But just what if our freedom to preach the word of God was taken away? What if your right to private education was taken away? You parents who have children, you put them in, in private schools or in Christian schools. What if that was taken away? What if that was revoked and you were told you have to put your kids in a public school? Would you be willing to go to jail? As this happened many times in many states in this country, by the way, over the last 30 years, there have been parents who have been taken, police have gone to the home, arrested them, put them in jail, take their children, put them into foster care because they had them in Christian schools. That has happened in some states in America. What happens to our convictions then? Are we willing to pay that cost? What if you're right to raise your children with discipline? And that's pretty much has been taken away, by the way. You know, if you have a child and you spank them at home and they go to, they go to school and make the mistake of telling the teacher, yeah, my mama, my mama whips me. There'll be a social worker knocking at your door. I guarantee it. And by the way, that's not just public schools. That is private and Christian schools. Do you know when we had our Christian school, we were mandatory reporters. 
And if we didn't, if we didn't report that, we were subject to, to jail time. Listen, this is a serious thing. Are you willing to pay that kind of cost? Are we prepared to stand for truth with our faith? As Christian disciples, we must put Christ first before all things. This is the first of our tasks as disciples. As it was the first of all commandments. Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. As Peter and the apostles boldly stated to the Jewish council in Acts chapter 5, then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. And don't forget, since the council could not stop them from preaching, what did they ultimately do? Put them to death. Couldn't get them to stop preaching. Peter said, no, we're going to obey God rather than you. And ultimately it got to the point where they said, okay, well, you won't stop preaching. We'll stop you. What are you willing to pay? There's some cost involved in discipleship. But we must put God first. We must have commitment. All right, folks, I have to stop. Thank you for being here today, and you are dismissed. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.